0: You recall that Joseph's brothers, Judah and Reuben and the rest, have just sold him into slavery and he has been carried off as a slave into Egypt. And in verse 38, we have kind of a sidebar to what was happening in his family while he was being abused and mistreated in Egypt. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite woman or certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore him a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Ketzeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the, Adul- the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her. He thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where's the temple prostitute who is by the road at Anahim? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father in law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. Father, today we ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves, and that you would most of all show us our Savior, Jesus, from Genesis chapter 38. Speak to us today, Father, and let us hear what you have to say to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might look at this story and think to yourself, selfishness? Deceit, prostitution, revenge, blackmail. All of this sounds a bit like uh, the lineup for tomorrow night's primetime television schedule, doesn't it? It's actually not that. It's just another episode in the life of God's chosen family, the family of Jacob. You might call them the Jacobsons if they were living in America. We're confronted again here with the ugliness of Jacob's family and really with the ugliness of human nature in Genesis 38. And we're reminded again this morning of the degradation to which we can fall. Even those of us who have the most privileged backgrounds, like these boys, are capable of distasteful, awful, ugly scenes in our lives. And that's not a very happy reminder, but as unhappy as the reminder may be this morning, it's a necessary reminder We need to remember that we are sinners. And I'm so glad God included stories like this one in the Bible because they're reminders to us, aren't they, that human beings are not and never have been basically good. This story is another reminder that human beings are sinners who need a savior. So I'm thankful that God shows us all the warts of his characters. I'm also thankful because the fact that these stories are in the Bible says something about the authenticity of the Bible itself, doesn't it? If you think it out, you'll remember that Judah, this villain whom we've read about, this immoral man in chapter 38, was the father of the royal clan of Israel. He was the chief among the sons of Israel. He was the direct ancestor of the Messiah. And if you're going to make up, a fanciful religious story about God and his chosen people, you would never paint Judah or his family like the Bible paints them in Genesis 38, would you? You would make these characters heroic. You would make them honorable. You would make them noble. But you would never make them incestuous, deceitful half-breeds, which is exactly what we're reading about here. But the Bible does paint them that way. And the fact that the Bible does paint them that way is a mark of the Bible's authenticity. This isn't a book just filled with moral fairy tales that someone made up. This is a book filled with real stories about real people and real events that actually took place in real time. And therefore, as we read it this morning, we remember that we base our faith not on fables, but on facts. So thank God that he included this story. Most of all, we thank him this morning, as I said earlier, that this story is another reminder of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. If there were ever a story that painted human sin in great detail, it would be Genesis 38. So we're going to look it over this morning, and we're going to see what we can learn about sin this morning. And what I want to do from Genesis 38 is make four observations about sin in general. So four things about sin in general, and then we're going to look specifically at one particular sin. There are lots of sins that we might look at, We're going to take time just to look very closely at one particular sin and then we'll close with some reflections on God's remedy for sin as we see it in Genesis 38. So first, four observations about sin in general. Number one, I want you to notice the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Look at verses 6 through 10 again. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Here in the first few verses of the chapter, God takes the life of two young men, two young men who were probably around my age. They were at the age where they were beginning to build families. They were at the age where it seemed like their whole lives were ahead of them. And God took their lives from them in an instant. Someone might read this and think, that this is cruel and unusual on the part of the Lord. But I want you to notice that the author of Genesis reports these two deaths very calmly as though they were quite normal. doesn't spend a lot of time or ink on them at all. He just says, so the Lord took his life. And then in verse 10, so he took his life also. And that's the end of the story about these two characters. And why is that? Why does the author of Genesis give so little print to these Amazing deaths, these deaths that would have been devastating in the life of this family. Why do they seem so run of the mill? Because there's nothing out of the ordinary or spectacular about this at all. This is simply the way God works. God's settled purpose is to deal out just retribution to sinners. For some of us, it may happen immediately, like it happened with Ur and Onan. For most of us, the judgments of God are like a slow train coming, but the train will come. God always punishes sin with death. And this is just a reminder of it. Sin is that serious. What Ur and Onan did was that serious. Again, someone may read this story and you may be saying to yourself, that serious? It's not like these men were rapists or child molesters or murderers. In fact, all Onan did was refuse to be the sperm donor for his sister-in-law. Maybe that was a little bit selfish, but surely that isn't punishable by death. Lots of people have done things a lot worse than that. I've even done things a lot worse than that. If that's the way you're thinking this morning, I think that's exactly what God wants you to think. You've got it. You've even done things worse than this. The death of these two young men is recorded for us in Holy Scripture as a reminder to all of us that all of us are just as guilty as Ur and Onan. All of us are just as deserving of death as Ur and Onan. And if Onan's offense, minor as it were, quote-unquote minor as it were, was worthy of death, then all of us have done things that are worthy of death. In fact, what this, Bible, what this passage is really teaching is that there really are no minor offenses. The wages of sin, every kind of sin, is death. Because Habakkuk 1 says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Whether we think that evil is small or great is not the question. God punishes sin with death. And so if God were to strike any one of us or all of us down right here this morning, it would neither be cruel nor would it be unusual punishment. We need to remember that. The fact that we're breathing right now is grace. Have you thought about that lately? If Ur and Onan were punishable by death, then you and I are doing things every single day that are punishable by death. Every smart aleck remark, every selfish attitude, every vengeful thought, every complaining word deserves God's death sentence. We're no better than Ur and Onan. Or Ananias and Sapphira. Or Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, who reached out and touched the ark and God took his life. And Jesus says something very interesting about this. He says this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sin is that serious. So we have the seriousness of sin, a reminder of it in this passage. What about the cycle of sin? The cycle of sin. Did you notice... In these verses, how one sin led to another. First, Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7, and he got himself killed. Well, Ur's sin and getting himself killed put his brother Onan in an awkward spot. So that Onan, verse 9, spilled his seed on the ground and got himself killed. And Onan's death now put their father in a jam because Judah saw that his first two sons had been killed. Because of And, and it left a, a relationship where he had one son left who he, whom he was supposed to give to Tamar. But he had lost two sons already. And so he sinned by holding back his third son from Tamar. Contrary to what God says in his word. For fear, verse 11, that he too may die like his brothers. So Ur sinned and that forced, or didn't force, but pushed Onan to sin. And that tempted Judah to sin. And then Judah's sin in turn left Tamar. A hopeless widow who resorted to prostitution in verse 14. And her seductive behavior was the snare into which Judah finally fell himself in verse 16. What a vicious family cycle of sin was begun with one man's rejection of God in verse 7. Ur was not pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And because of this, it set off a chain of events to where his whole family was destroyed. Sin always begets more sin. The point this morning is not to minimize the responsibility of all these people for their own individual actions. No one was making them sin. Each individual took the bait himself or herself. And we're not minimizing the power of the gospel to break the cycle of sin this morning either in the life of an individual or a family or a culture. But we are simply observing a general principle about how God's world works, and that is this. One sin usually leads to another and another and still another. Sometimes it happens just as we look at our own individual lives. You can see this cycle happening. Some people who commit moral failures then turn around and feel forced to lie because of their previous sin. People who are drug addicts, Steal in order to support their previous sinful habits. We get in quarrels with one another because we were already envious or bitter about something else. One sin leads to another. Some of us rob God or rob the government at tax time because we need to feed an already covetous heart. One sin usually leads to another. And until Jesus comes and breaks that cycle, all of us are slaves to this downward spiral of degradation. And we see it so devastatingly in chapter 38, not in an individual's life, but in this case, in the life of a family. So the cycle of sin doesn't just affect us as individuals. It spills over into our relationships with other people, people that we love or ought to love. Our sins almost always lead to sins in other people as well. How does that work? Well, sometimes we sin and others imitate our sins. Sometimes we sin and someone that loves us lies to cover up our sin. Sometimes we sin and other people retaliate against us because of our sin. Sometimes we sin and we put other people in places of temptation because of the difficulty that we put them in by our own sinful behavior. There are all sorts of ways that our sins against one another lead to the sins of other people. Can you imagine Ur and Onan I don't think that they had any idea that what they were doing in their rejection of God was going to wreak such havoc on their entire family, but it did. And if they'd understood the seriousness of sin and the cycle that sin creates, they would have seen the danger and maybe they would have repented before it was too late. And so must you and I. You must ask yourself this morning, if I continue in my sins of choice... Whatever your sin habits may be, if I continue in these, how is that going to affect those people that I love in 10, 20, 50 years from now? It may be affecting people that you love after you're dead and gone. Just think it out just with the few specific sins we see in this story. Parents, are you like Judah, tempting your children to sin because you're sinning yourself? That's what Judah did. Tamar became a prostitute because Judah sinned. Children... Are you, like Ur and Onan, testing your parents to the point where they sin? That's what these two boys did. They didn't follow God. They put their dad in a tight spot, and he sinned as well. Young people, are you, like Ur, teaching your siblings to sin by your own misbehavior? Women, are you, like Tamar, tantalizing men to ruin their families with adultery you need to ask yourself these kind of questions. What might be the long-term ramifications of one selfish act or one family squabble or one blow-up at the office or one low-cut blouse or one shady business deal? What might happen because I refuse to repent of my sins? All sorts of things. Study the events of Genesis 38 and think it out for yourself and see if God doesn't bring you to a place of repentance. So, we've seen the seriousness of sin. We've seen the cycle of sin. Thirdly, we see the seductiveness of sin in the life of Tamar. The seductiveness of sin. Observe how she enticed Judah like a fly into her tangled web. What does she use as bait? She used her own body, didn't she? She covered herself with a veil, it says, verse 14, which, when you read verse 15, you realize was apparently the kind of apparel that a streetwalker, a prostitute, would have worn. Judah immediately recognized that this woman was setting herself up as a harlot on the street corner. So she dressed up like a harlot. Verse 14, she also removed her widow's garments and wrapped herself. Wrapped herself with what? What? Well, apparently she wrapped herself with something a lot more seductive and probably a lot more revealing than her black widow's gown. Something that would surely arouse a passerby like Judah. And she didn't stop there either. She laid in wait for her prey. She sat down in the place in the gate of the city where she knew Judah would be passing right through on his way to Timnah. And once He came to the gate and saw her there, weakling that he was. She had him trapped. She seduced him. And without pressing these events too far out of the context, I just want to say to you that this is exactly how sin of every stripe ensnares us, isn't it? Sin is seductive. Sin is usually wrapped in beautiful clothing. Sin makes us think that we are going to be happy. Are we going to be successful? Are we going to be exhilarated? Are we going to finally be content if we will just do this or say that or go there? That's how sin works. Sin, like Tamar, sits in the gates of the city and is all too easy to find if you're looking for it. And it looks very good on the surface. And we need to learn from this. And what we need to learn is flee from sin, flee from the harlot. Flee from temptation. What should Judah have done when he saw her sitting in the gate at Anaheim? Maybe he should have taken the extra half hour that it might have cost him to walk around the outside of the city walls instead of passing right through the gate, right past the temptation. An extra half hour of walking would have saved him many griefs and would have been worth it in the end. Maybe he should have just walked past the seductress with his head down. Never gave her a second glance. And if he had, the whole family disaster might have been ended right here. But it wasn't ended because Judah walked right past her. He apparently did look at her. He apparently looked at her again. And when he got close enough, he couldn't help himself. He turned aside to her, verse 16, by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. He could have avoided it. But he walked right past the temptation. And then notice in verse 17, even after soliciting the prostitute, God gives him another chance to change his mind. In verse 17, we discover that he didn't have enough money in his fanny pack to pay this woman for her services. He was going to have to pay her later. Wasn't this an opportunity for him to escape? Wasn't this that way of escape that God promises us? Here he's trying to pay off a prostitute and he reaches in his bag and he doesn't have enough money to pay her. He could have just said, "Okay, God, you're trying to protect me. You're trying to give me a chance. I'm going to leave. I'm going to avert this temptation. I'm going to let the whole thing go away. But he didn't do it. He did not seize the opportunity. And therefore, he fell into adultery and into absolute family chaos. It's a clear and urgent message in the demise of Judah, isn't there? The message is that we must not give the seductress a second look. Whatever the sin is that is seducing you, do not give it a second look. Do not allow allow sin of any kind to get a foothold in your life. Take the way of escape. And as I said last week, I say again this morning, maybe this morning God is speaking to you about a particular sin. And this very message is God's way of escape. Take it. And avert disaster that lies ahead. Because once you're in the harlot's bedroom, it is terribly hard to get out again without coming, without getting what you came for. Take God's way of escape while you still can. So the seriousness of sin, the cycle of sin, the seductiveness of sin. And then fourthly, a fourth point about sin, your sin will find you out. Sorry, I couldn't come up with another S sounding word there. Um. But the fourth truth about sin is that your sin will find you out. That's what Moses told the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben in Numbers chapter 32. And it is perhaps the most obvious lesson in Genesis chapter 38. Your sin will find you out. Consider Judah, a stranger, sowing his wild oats in a strange town with an apparently strange woman. Surely no one will find out about this. None of my friends live here. I don't know this woman. She doesn't know me. No one here knows me. Surely I can get away with this. But notice that the strange woman, verse 18, made a strange request. She said to him, as a pledge that you're going to pay me later. Right now, I want you to give me your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. I don't know all the significance of the cord and the staff, but I do know this about Judah's seal. The seal was a ring that had a stamp pad on the top of it that you would use to, in effect, put your signature on a piece of clay or on wax on a document. So in giving this woman his seal, which would have been completely individual to him, no one else would have had one like it. Judah was, in our modern way of thinking, doing the same thing as if someone went to a harlot today and signed his signature on her bedpost. Stupid. Dumb. Dumb. But that's what sin does to you. That's exactly what sin does to you. Anyone who would have done any investigating about this at all would have discovered very quickly Judah's secret little tryst. But sin deceives you into thinking that no one is going to find out. Sin is too messy, though. It is too messy to stay hidden underneath the bed for long. Inevitably, you will get sloppy like Judah did. Inevitably, like Judah you will do something incredibly foolish that will get yourself caught. God will see to it. Because in God's economy, your sin will find you out. You will not get away with it forever. Some of you are sinning right now and you're getting away with it, but you will not get away with it forever. And even if God, in His mercy, allows you not to be exposed to everyone else, God Himself knows what you have done. Everything is open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 God knows everything that you're doing, thinking, and planning. What a shock it must have been. What an embarrassment it must have been in verse 25 when the mailman showed up at Judah's door with Judah's staff and Judah's signet ring and Judah's cord in his hand, and on the box was a return address envelope from his daughter-in-law. Busted. His heart must have sank to the pit of his feet. His knees must begin, must have begun to tremble. How much more should our hearts sink and our knees tremble at the prospect of someday standing before the judge of all the earth and having him pull out exhibits A, B, and C, which we thought no one knew about. At the judgment seat of Christ, our knees will tremble if we do not repent now. If we do not come clean now, we will be found out eventually. Isaiah says this, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. But if not, be sure that your sins will find you out. So sin is serious. Sin creates a cycle. Sin is seductive. Sin will find you out. Now we said we wanted to look specifically at one individual sin of one of the characters in the story. There are lots of sins. Let's just look at one. The one I have in mind is the sin of judgmentalism. the Sin of passing judgment on other people. The reason I want to talk about that sin is not only because it's obvious in this story, but because it's very prevalent in the American church culture, I think. So I thought it would be good for us to just pull judgmentalism out of its little bag and look it over for a while and make sure that we understand it ourselves and repent of it if we're guilty of it. Look at Judah. Judah in chapter 37 had been the chief instigator in selling his little brother Joseph into slavery. Then in verse 11, we find him again ignoring the instructions of God concerning his daughter-in-law. And now we've just found him soliciting a prostitute. This man has no moral leg to stand on whatsoever if he wants to pass judgment on another person. But somehow, that didn't prevent him from doing it. Listen to him in verse 24, recommending the death sentence for Tamar and for her unborn children for committing the same moral atrocity that he himself committed. Bring her out and let her be burned. How easy for him to pluck the speck out of her eye and not lift a finger to take the two-by-four of adultery out of his own. How easy it is for us church folks who have a few things figured out to do the same thing. Do you want to know what makes me angry? You can ask Toby. There's probably lots of things that make me angry. But one thing that makes me angry that I think we ought to be angry about is this. When I hear Christians firing cannonballs of hateful criticism over the wall at politicians, or at homosexuals, or at our good-for-nothing neighbors, or at whoever it is. That makes me angry. Before anyone says, well, you're being judgmental about those Christians who are shooting the cannonballs, let me go ahead and raise my hand and say I'm usually one of the first ones to throw my stone. So I'm including myself in this. I'm angry with myself when I do this. Who do we think that we are? Don't we understand the gospel that we claim to believe? Don't we realize that we're just as sinful as Ur and Onan and as Tamar and as Judah and as the woman across the street who lives with her boyfriend or lives with her girlfriend? We are just as sinful as they are. We are just as deserving of death as they are. And if there's any difference in our behavior and theirs, it is only by the grace of God, not because we possess any moral superiority. So Paul says in Romans 2, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for that in which you judge another, you condemn. In that in which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. Judgmentalism is an ugly sin. Now what are we saying here about judgmentalism? Are we saying that we should never be able to call sin, sin? Are we saying we should never speak the truth? No. Judah was absolutely correct in his interpretation of God's moral law. Tamar deserved to die. The problem wasn't with Judah's understanding of the law or the truth. The problem was that Judah didn't want to interpret the law or the truth and apply it to himself. That was the problem. That's the sin of judgmentalism. When we're quick to condemn other people and slow to recognize that we are equally sinful and equally deserving of condemnation. So then what are we saying? What am I saying? I'm saying that when we are quick to pile on other people, to fire our little poison darts of judgment and gossip towards other people, to run lost people into the ground because they act like lost people, who'd have thought it? We're showing that we do not understand the lostness out of which we ourselves were saved. We're showing that we do not understand the grace of God. We're showing perhaps that we don't understand the gospel at all. For if we did, we would not be or we would be more busy talking to these people about Jesus than about these people to our friends. If you are judgmental, you will spend more time talking about lost people than you will talking to them. It's a dangerous sin, one that all of us need to repent of. Let me close now, then, by reminding you of something I've been saying all throughout the book of Genesis and hopefully demonstrating as we've studied it together. What I've been saying and I hope demonstrating is that all the law and the prophets speak about Jesus. Whenever we read any part of the scriptures, it should be our task to think about how this passage either points us to or prepares us for Jesus. And for me, as I've studied Genesis, this has been one of the most enjoyable parts of my study every week in the book of Genesis looking for Jesus because he's there. So how is Jesus there in verse 38 how, or chapter 38? How does chapter 38 point us to Christ on the most basic level, as we said at the very beginning, this passage reminds us that we need Christ, that we need a savior to save us from having those words written about us that were written about Ur and Onan, so the Lord took his life. We need a Savior. These ugly passages of Scripture are meant to function for us as mirrors in which we see ourselves so that we might flee to Jesus. Genesis 38 also reminds us of the grace of God that is ours in Jesus. We're like Judah. None of us by any means deserve to be called a child of God, and yet in Jesus we are. None of us by any means deserves to be forgiven of our sins, but like Judah, we are. And none of us deserves to be useful to God, but like Judah, through Jesus, God makes us useful to himself. As we read on in the story, we're going to find this every single week, the grace of God exhibited to these characters that is the same grace of God that flows to us only in the person of Jesus. All these things are true of us. Only if we're in Jesus. But if we're in Jesus, there's grace upon grace upon grace. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And there's a third way, a less obvious way that Genesis 38 points us to Jesus. We discover it when we look very closely at those last four verses of the chapter, verses 27 through 30, the story of Tamar's delivery of twins, Perez and Zerah. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out or his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Sarah. And what could possibly point to Jesus in that little uh, incident of these twins? Do you remember seeing the the name Perez anywhere else in Scripture? If you've ever read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3, then you've seen the name Perez. Because Perez was the direct ancestor of both Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. And consequently, Jesus was a direct descendant of this baby, Perez. You see the significance of this? Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Judah, Genesis 38. God's plan all along was that Jesus would come into the world through the family bloodlines of Judah. But in verse 7, Judah's oldest son died. And in verse 10, Judah's next son died. And so the plans of God to send his son through the line of Judah seem to be fading quickly. Yet in the rest of the chapter, and particularly in these verses, we see the sovereignty of God, ensuring that the bloodline of Jesus would remain intact, even if he had to use the sinfulness of Judah and Tamar in order to make it happen. If this chapter doesn't happen, then we don't have Jesus. So do you know what this story says to me, finally? It says to me, God's in control. And it says to me, Jesus is the goal of all human history. God allowed all this to happen and superintended it so that we would have a savior. Nothing and no one was going to thwart his plan. Why did God do that? Because God loves exalting Jesus. And because God loves sinners and God loves saving sinners through Jesus. Jesus. And so he was working way back in Genesis 38 to make sure that it happened. And I just close by asking if you've come to know this God who shapes all of human history so that you might have a savior. Have you met this God who showers grace upon grace on rich, wretched men and women like Judah and Tamar and you and me? Have you come to know and trust in this Jesus, the one who paid for Judah's sins and Tamar's sins and your sins and my sins, so that we might be called children of God? Have you come to know this Jesus that all of human history is pointing to? And if not, today is the day. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Some of you need to make that move to Jesus today, and I want to pray that you will. Father, you've shown us yourself today within your word. You've shown us ourselves and you've shown us our Savior. Work now by the conviction of your Holy Spirit to help us, those who are believers and those who are not yet believers, to realize Again, or for the first time this morning, how much we need Jesus. Let the truth ring in every heart as we leave this morning that Jesus Christ is all that we have. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name now. Amen. We're going to, yes. I want to add one thing to your last song. I'd like to sing the second verse of the first one again after we done with this. Okay. You just tell us what to do. We're going to sing Psalm 51 from the screen. So let me invite you to stand and sing that and then we'll sing another verse uh, from another song when we conclude.